No. I'm not worried at all. I rely on God, Allah. Bismillah, alhamdulillah. Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Sheikh Abdurrahman Murad is with us. He needs no introduction, but I'm still going to give him an introduction. He is somebody who not only has ilm, he has ilm for sure. He has a degree in Sharia from Imam Muhammad University. Uh, who likes halal food? Who likes halal food, right? He has a master's international Islamic university in Malaysia for halal uh, industry management. You know, he's very adept in uh, fiqh in these areas, but uh, subhanAllah, he's given courses on aqidah, on seerah. Uh, we've had him do da'wah lectures. Uh, so, mashallah, we have a big treat with us, you know, for us tonight. There is a growing uh, mental health crisis in modern societies. It's growing to the point of being an epidemic and it's overwhelming communities. And for the youth, it's actually the number one cause of death for youth is uh, as a result of mental illnesses. So this is an important lecture. This is a very key and important lecture, not only for Muslims, but society at large, because inshallah, Sheikh Abdurrahman Murad will present, can Islam help solve the modern crisis of declining mental health? Bismillah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa ashabih wa ala man tabi'ahum bi ihsanin ila yawmiddin wa ba'd Rabbish rahli sadri wa yassirli amri wahlul uqudatan min lisani yafqahu qawli Hayyakumullah brothers, sisters Truly is an honor to be here among you And we pray to Allah Azza wa Jal that as we're here gathered, insha'Allah, that he bless us all with al-jannatil firdaus al-a'la, ameen thumma ameen. Now, brothers and sisters, the topic, as you've heard, house call, is one that you can look at in different ways. Now, before I do get into the points that I prepared for tonight, I do want to shed light on maybe one or two very important critical points that tie in with the issue of mental health. Now, often, you might be inundated with so much information about mental health, the importance of mental health, and you would not hear much about Islam. In fact, when I was in one of the cities uh, that you know the tour lecture tour was uh, you know was at, I was asked by one of the attendees, uh, "I have not seen nothing from Islam on mental health. It's only the West that has given information on mental health." So that took me, I was taken aback somewhat, subhanAllah. So we did discuss the issue at length, and alhamdulillah, the person who asked the question was satisfied afterwards. But to me afterwards, I began to think that truly, if this person was thinking this way, then by right, others would have the same notion that maybe Islam doesn't have anything to say about this. Now, I do want to bring one very important guideline, this rule, it's basically a fundamental rule for everything when it comes to Islam. It states, Al-Islam That Islam is suitable for every time and place. Subhanallah. This is one of the miracles of this deen. A commandment that the Prophet ﷺ gave us over 1400 years ago. As it was applicable back then, 
it's applicable today and it will be applicable till the very end of time subhanallah likewise before the hadith the quran itself the same can be said of it it's timeless as it was then it is now it shall be towards the very end ta'ala. you find no doubt every solution every answer in the quran and in the sunnah of rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam when muslims began to drift from their faith and you know we went through that stage whereby subhanallah people began to strip away the deen from state and thereafter we had that split that divide where people no longer looked at the faith as something important rather it was scoffed at put down to the point that even when a person was studying deen back then you'd find people laughing and saying what will it do for you because people are thinking uh, or looking at everything from a very material perspective subhanallah Allahumma the sad thing is as that split occurred people began to drift away from the faith they failed to you know realize or they forgot at least i should say that they forgot that this deen has an answer to everything you know i find it amazing looking back in history where you had people lamenting on the loss of and this is specifically in al-andalus present-day spain where when islam was at its peak and people were coming to study not just the you know uh, sciences but also islam the arabic language one of these priests lamented saying that look at our youth he's not talking about muslim talking about the christian youth at that time they are abandoning their own teachings their own books their own language to learn the arabic language to learn you know the hadith the quran not to dispute them but they learn these to achieve the highest linguistic order to learn directly from them and they appreciate them subhanallah that tells you a lot because in every field of science you had muslims who were very deep in their faith who had that attachment to their deen overall they were the ones who were leading the scientific world in every aspect in every area and this also includes the area of mental health by the way so it's nothing new so if you look at a historical perspective now diving into history we have a number of these ulama who in addition to them speaking extensively on medical issues they also spoke about the psyche the the mental health and wellness of an individual because that was important al-kindi Ibn Miskaway, Ibn Rushd, who was no doubt, subhanAllah, one of the, 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 the you know, great scholars of his era, who spoke on these issues in detail. Abu Zayd al-Balkhi, al-Ghazali, you had also Ibn al-Qayyim, rahmatullahi, alayhi majma'in. But Imam Ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahullah, he has a profound approach to mental health and it's a balanced approach. We'll touch a bit on that afterwards, inshallah. So this is the first point that I do want to raise. That, you know, subhanAllah, al-Islam salihun li kulli zamanin wa makan. Now the second point, and this is a very important introduction as well, and this often really confounds me because I, I deal with people who come up to me asking, Shaykh, but Islam says this, but Islam says that. Allahu Akbar. It's not, and, and you sit down and discuss these issues with people who say, Islam says this, Islam says that. It's nothing to do with Islam. It, it, it really bewilders, it's bewildering because often the issue of culture now is confused as actual Islam. And it's so frustrating because 
times a person will come, oh, I have this right, I have that right. And specifically in marriage, that's when it really is confounding, subhanAllah, where you'll have, you know, a brother or sister basically holding on to some, you know, cultural element, and this must be done this way or it's not correct. And that it could be in direct opposition to the Quran and the Sunnah of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And even if you're to inform them, I don't care. This is what I was raised up with, I'm sticking with this only. So often, the, the cultural component, it no doubt is a very impactful sphere of influence upon an individual that in itself can cause a lot of harm. Mentally speaking, I'm talking about now. Other ways as well, but this is in that, in that perspective of mental health. The culture can cause a lot of wear and tear. It can cause one to become so you know, exhausted. It can even make them quite ill, subhanAllah. Islam has a cure, but subhanAllah, it's always that, that struggle. Now what I've found, subhanAllah, this only occurs when people are distant from their faith, ignorant of their deen. The more that we raise that awareness in communities, and the more that we educate ourselves, the more that we can overcome that barrier of culture and take Islam as it should be taken, as it was during the Prophet Sallallahu time. There were so many barriers back then as people became Muslim and they had these cultures that were you know, ingrained within them. At times they would come up and cause problems. Prophet ﷺ was there to knock those barriers down, get people to, on that straight path, to think straight, to be correct, and do the things that are pleasing to Allah Azza wa Jal. So this is a very important point that I think we should have in mind as well. Mind you, and I think this is very important as well, when you're giving da'wah, if someone asks you something, and they assert, this is from Islam, always know in the back of your mind, most likely it isn't. Verify. Ask if you know not. Now, the last point that I do want to raise with this is because culture is so ingrained uh, across, you know, I'm not talking about one specific, you know, race. I'm talking about everyone. Everyone has their cultures. And you find people attached to it to such a great extent, it's difficult to overcome. Because of this, we have that stigma that's now attached to, oh, uh, mental health. How can you go and tell someone that you're mentally ill? I mean, you're not going to say that, but I mean, if people find out, they'll, they will say that, right? But, interesting thing is, in the issue of mental health, and I've come across this, like I said, being an imam, you come across many scenarios that you're kind of stunned with, subhanAllah. But I come across scenarios where, for example, a father, a mother will give me a phone call, uh, up, you know, set up an appointment. Sheikh, my son or my daughter has jinn. They have jinn. What's the issue? No, no, I need you simply to read Quran on my son and daughter. But I need to know what's wrong. Don't worry about that. Just please, if you can't read the Quran, read Quran in some water or olive oil, give it to me so I can use that. I, and look, I, I've done that a few times. You read in the water and the oil, you follow up. How, how are things now? Oh, mashallah, beautiful, amazing, things are improving. After a couple of days, when it runs out, Shaykh, can you give me a refill? It doesn't work that way. There's, been something, there's, there's something more at play here than simply you know, a jinn or a sihr. Now, don't take from what I'm saying that I'm, I, I'm taking away from the, the power and impact of the Quran. By all means, we believe it has that impact. And we know this clearly from the hadith. I'll share with you that one narration where a group of companions were traveling back to Al-Madina and they ran out of their supplies. And they just so happened to be close to a tribe 
an Arab tribe in the area and they asked you know, for some help, some supplies, but they refused them entirely. So thereafter, they did not know where to go. The chief of that tribe was stung by a scorpion or a snake. He fell ill, he was dying. They tried everything that they had and they realized that it was of to no avail. It did not do anything. So they said among themselves, well, ask the people that, we, that came to us. Maybe they have a person who can give some, some, some dawa, some medicine. They went, one of the Sahaba raised his hand, he said, I, I can take care of this, but because you never gave us the supplies that you should have given, culturally speaking, we're not going to help you. I'm not going to help you. So they agreed to terms. He went, and the Sahaba said, by Allah, we never knew that man to be a man of medicine. Just an average Sahabi. He went, came back, and the man was cured. They said, subhanAllah, what did you do? This is not a mental ailment. Not a spiritual ailment, it's a physical ailment. The guy is dying from a, uh, you know, a scorpion or a snake bite. Matter of hours before you drop dead with that. He just read Al-Fatiha. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. And Allah Azza wa Jal cured that man on account of this qira'ah. Thereafter, when they went to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Rasulullah approved of what they did. Right? He said, how did you know that this was a cure for all ailments? Now that said, I'm not taking away from the Qur'an or the Ahadith, but there are certain mental illnesses that require from us to, to, to do something else or additional to the Qur'an and the Ahadith. And that is what we call Al-Akhdu Bil-Asbab. So you take by the necessary means available to you to, to, to uh, acquire that proper health that you have to be or state that state you have to be in. Now to make that clear as well, it's, for example, like a person, al-akhdu bil-asbab, taken by the necessary means. And to make it simplified out of the issue of mental health, just to give you a basic example. If there's a person who, you know, subhanAllah, middle of night, goes to the most, the worst part of town, leaves his car running with the window open, runs inside the store to buy something, the keys are in the ignition, and there's people wandering around, he says, tawakkaltu ala Allah, I depend upon Allah to save my car. Would you approve that of that action? Is it something that's favorable or good? No. It doesn't make sense. Because here you're required to take by al-akhdu bil-asbab, to take by these the, 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 the means to secure your vehicle. These means Allah commands us to take by them, right? They're not effective in of themselves, but rather they go hand in hand with other commandments that we have in the Quran and the Sunnah. So going back to this issue over here, Mental health, yes, we say Quran has an impact, but you must also take by al-akhdu bil-asbab, by the necessary means available to you to acquire or achieve that wellness that you should be in, right? Because in the end, it's not in your hands. I want to stay mentally ill. It's not up to you. Your body is a blessing from Allah Azza wa Jal, and you are required to take care of this body. That's the command that we have. You can't just go damage it and destroy it the way that you want. You cannot use it haphazardly. You are required, and you'll be asked about this by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What did you do with this body? And subhanallah, you must then do your best, your utmost, to preserve it, which also includes the preservation of your mental wellness. Now, that as an introduction, I want to move on directly into the topic over here. Now, you can read this as well. This is the definition of mental health, as is mentioned in the Counseling Dictionary uh, by Samuel Gladding. It's a recognized source. 
a resource. He states or defines mental wellness or mental health, sorry, as a state of positive wellness and emotional well-being free from excessive stress that permits a successful performance of mental functioning, resulting in productive activities, fulfilling relationships with other people, and the ability to adapt to change and to cope with adversity. Okay. Now, I want you to think of that, this definition. We're going to come to an Islamic definition as well, but I want you to think of, of this definition. Take a moment to read it, think about it, and then I want to introduce the Islamic concept of mental health. Just think, what are the key parts of this definition? What does it particularly relate to? And as a Muslim, you have to think of now, what is missing from this? Think of it as elements for a recipe, you know, individual items. What things are missing from this definition when it comes to the Islamic perspective of mental health? So here are the bare essentials for our perspective of mental health. First and foremost, you have the issue of tazkiyatun nafs, which we look at as being the backbone of our mental health therapy and interventions. Because okay, it's not just a matter of secular view. This is a religious, Islamic, wholesome approach with all these things that we'll talk about in mind as we look at what constitutes mental health from an Islamic perspective. Tazkiyatun nafs simply is purification of one's soul. Now, there are methods to do this. We'll get to that afterwards, inshallah. But this is the key component. Then we have the second part, which is al-maqasid. Al-maqasid al-shara'iyya. The higher objectives of our faith. These are integral to mental health. The last part is the issue of happiness, which would be the result of that therapy, the Islamic approach. It's based on the Islamic principles, and we'll get to that, inshallah. So this is a breakdown of tazkiyatun nafs. First and foremost, and this is taken from different scholars, Al-Ghazali and others, taken from, of course, the Nusus, the text from the Quran and the Sunnah, whereby we have, first and foremost, the approach using self-awareness. Who are you? More often than not, we don't know who we are. What I mean is not your name or where you're from, but rather recognizing your weaknesses and your strengths. Right? And this is very important. In fact, we find in the hadith, and this is very interesting. Abu Dhar, radiallahu anhu, great companion. Right? Abu Dhar, radiallahu anhu, he came to the Prophet one time, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and he asked the Prophet to be given a position of power to govern something. The Prophet responded to him in a very profound way. He said, You are a weak man. He didn't mean this to insult him at all. He didn't mean to put him down, to humiliate, nothing of the sort. Rasulullah recognized that this was a flaw within him. So when you recognize your own strengths and weaknesses, you can work on those strengths, you know, try to work on those weaknesses to overcome them. So he realized this is something within him. Subhanallah. So at that, Abu Dhar radiallahu an avoided asking for that afterwards. Never did that again. Abu Dhar radiallahu an, he went to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Rasulullah recognized something in him. He guided him, directed him to that flaw. And here we find him trying his best to improve and overcome that issue that he had. Look, we're all human beings. No matter how we try to hide it, we all have what? Our flaws. Whether we like it or we don't. 
The only thing is we can hide it very well sometimes. It could be whatever it is that you have, right? So if you begin to go on that journey of self-awareness, who am I? What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? It's here that now you can recognize certain issues and with that you can move forward in a more positive way. Number two, overcoming negativity. And this is extremely important. Yani, subhanallah, being an imam, you come across many who come with this issue. Very negative. Now, Fort McMurray is special. Yani, subhanallah, we've been through a, a destructive fire that Wallahu a'lam, we thought at the time it would destroy the whole city because the fire was raging. I've never seen anything like it in my life. The fire just coming and we're running away from the fire, subhanAllah. To that point, Allahu a'lam, we all thought the city is finished. And then we had the economic downturn which compounded that musibah. Afterwards, we had a massive flood, land over flood which flooded certain parts of the downtown, well, most of the downtown core, with roughly 14 feet of water. No one is insured for that, by the way, because you, land over flood is not something that you can easily get insurance for. Especially being in a flood area, good luck with that. So, musibah upon musibah upon musibah. It's difficult for one to really overcome all that negativity, and you'll have people who come with a very negative outlook. Right? We're commanded not to sustain or keep that upon ourselves don't dwell upon negativity yes it is difficult to overcome you may experience it in the beginning but as a muslim we understand that we should move forward go beyond that negativity and there are methods to do this within the sunnah within the quran in the sunnah of the prophet now in the hadith there is one narration i find to be profound i've never forgot this hadith in the day that i i heard this hadith that was what 30 years ago 35 40 years ago subhanallah the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said man qala inna an-nas qad halaku we can read this hadith in two ways fa huwa ahlakuhum or fa huwa ahlakahum okay literally put whoever says it's done it's over there's no hope the narration says what he is the worst of the bunch, or he is the source of that of the harm. Ahlakahum, yani he's the one that actually did this. He destroyed others, himself and others. Or he's the worst. In both cases, meaning is correct. What it tells us is that negativity is a disease. Right? Have you ever sat with someone who's negative, extremely negative? And they sit down and talk to you? You try to bring them up, they just bring you right back down. Wallahi, it's, it's a musibah because I've sat with people like this. Ya akhi, inshallah, everything khair. What's khair? Nothing khair, ya akhi. They bring right back down to earth. He's like, a'udhu billah, ya akhi. Say alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah for what? They go, they go insane. This is, this is, these are real examples of people who are anguished. But you know, you would think this would be over in the first two, three, four hour, one day. But no, it continues for weeks on end. When you sit with someone like that, you become mentally, physically exhausted, drained, you don't want to be with them. This is exactly what Rasulullah has mentioned here. Essentially, this is like a disease. It spreads. Be careful who you take as a friend. Don't hang out with people like this. Negativity is dangerous. So here, we have al-mujahada. Mujahada al-nafs. To, to basically, really, it's like a, an internal struggle within yourself to overcome that barrier of negativity that stands before you. Okay? Next step. 
cultivation of the heart. This is a very Islamic asil principle, basically where a Muslim would strive to really build up their faith within themselves, their iman, in a way that's pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala without any, any desire for this dunya. You're doing it purely for Allah's sake. So it's basically a cleansing that you go through. Self-evaluation. Al-muhasaba or muhasaba nafs which is essential here. Now you get to these stages now, look at yourself, where am I? I know my flaws, negativity issue is there, I'm working myself, after some time you get to the point where now you want to self-assess, how am I doing? And this is important, you can't think that I'm now sailing on top of the world, no, you gotta bring yourself back down to earth, humble yourself and really realize where you're at. You know, this is very important, subhanAllah. And then ultimately, this cycle will lead to happiness, bi-idhnillahi ta'ala. We'll talk about happiness in a bit, inshallah. Now, Tazkiyatun Nafs, the backbone. Al-Maqasid al-Shara'iyyah. This is an important, important element. This is a very interesting subject matter as well. If you do get the chance to study it, I would really recommend that you do. It's important. The profound thing with this is that when you begin to study this, you realize that subhanAllah, every verse in the Quran, every hadith, they all serve or basically have these higher objectives, higher functions. The preservation of one's faith, the preservation of one's body, their life, their intellect, their family, and their wealth. Everything in the Quran and Sunnah they serve these higher, or these five higher objectives and functions. Now, to break it down a bit, I want to share with you a commandment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah the Exalted. In the Quran, this command is repeated four times in a specific manner. Okay? Allah azza wa commands us to eat from something very specific. كُلُوا مِمَّا فِي الْأَرْضِ حَلَالًا طَيِّبًا Not just halal. But also, Allah Azza wa Jal has added that second descriptor. طَيِّبًا Some scholars, of course, there's a debate as to what these two terms mean. Back then, when life was very simple, brothers and sisters, during Rasulullah's time, what food additives did you have? What food additives were, were used during the Prophet's time? Basic natural, uh, chemical-free additives. With the food, you'd add maybe, you know, some salt and whatever was there, in, you know, in their, you know, in, in their environment. That's all they would use. Nothing special. Nothing, you know, exquisite per se. It is what it is. Fresh, no chemicals. The food did not have that negative impact upon the mind and the body. But today, wallahi, after studying about the foods, I'm at times looking and thinking, is this actually food? The stuff that we're eating. The question comes to my mind often, is it actually food? Now, what, what, like, what, what do we consider to be food? Just give me an example. A drink, a beverage. What do you consider to be a good beverage? Or everyone drink, no, not a good beverage. A beverage that is common across the board. Pepsi and Coke. That's a bunch of chemicals. Can you consider that to be some type of wholesome food? Of course not. Even the other foods that look appealing, frozen or otherwise, look at the ingredients. I, I challenge you, try to go through the entire list without, you know, um, well, try to read the whole thing perfectly without any mistake. 
that's going to be difficult as well. There's such long words there that they don't make much sense anyways. All preservatives and colors and, you know, conditioners. Allah al-Mistan. So the question really comes up, what are we consuming? We're eating this without thinking twice about it. The industry is to begin with um, skewed. You can't really trust them to anyways because, you know, if you look at this whole sugar issue where subhanAllah, they realized it was a toxin back when and they kind of covered it up for it to be sold and people became addicted to it. Now they come back to that point, oh, actually it's dangerous for you. Or any other food additive that's taken, you know, subhanAllah, without thinking about it twice, we now see that there are huge impacts for those foods upon your mind, your body, and whatnot. Actually, there's research studies that talk about the danger of this processed food, not just upon your body, but upon your mind. The, you know, that's why they have, they said this, many studies they found that ADHD, these things, they become common on account of what people consume. Now, when I was in Malaysia, the candies, we took up like a little test, as a hand, the hard candies, the colorful little things that you get. There it's quite interesting because every individual wrapper is stamped halal. Okay, It's stamped halal. Of course, it's not to be laughed at because they have a very high standard of what halal actually is. Even on the water bottles, it's stamped halal. You might think, why? They have a very strong you know, a reasoning to use that stamp halal because, I don't want to get into the details, not our topic, but overall, well, you might want to know about this. But anyways, because there... What they do when they filter the water, they in that part of the world, they use boar bristles and pig hair to filter out the big stuff when they're filtering the water out. So when it's stamped halal, you know that there's nothing like this used to begin with in your water. You can be safe. You can be assured that it, your water did not touch any pig bristles or any pig hair, basically. Okay? So it's, it's a reason for it. But now going back to the issue of these candies, it's stamped halal. But I want to ask you, in our, you know, among ourselves... In our communities, when you are told this is halal, what comes to your mind? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? There's two things usually, right? Two things that we're concerned about. What's the first one? Alcohol and porcine content, pig content, right? That's what we usually look for. We ask, is there pig in it? No, that's good. The second one, is there alcohol there? No, we're good. Usually, this is the halal standard that many follow, those two items. This might fulfill halalan, the term halalan, Yani Allah has legalized it. Yani there's nothing haram per se in it. But the other descriptor is unfulfilled. Tayyiban. What does that mean? Tayyiban means something that's wholesome, nutritious, valuable in that regard for your well-being, which includes your mental well-being, your physical well-being. So stuff that's stamped halal may not fulfill the second condition. But the problem is, culturally speaking, People go for the first descriptor because it's easy to ascertain. The second will cost you money. So therefore, they abandon that second part. But this is something that we have. Tayyiban, that we have to look out for these foods that might have that negative impact upon ourselves. The chemical imbalances and whatnot. Like I said, there's research in this that talk about just how damaging these chemicals are upon you as an individual and what cognitive problems they may cause for you. Subhanallah. Allah understand. So we're looking always at a balance in life. This is very important when it comes to mental health, a balance. So what I'm getting at over here is that the perspective of mental health in Islam doesn't just pertain to one or two things. It's a way of life. To begin with, Islam is not a religion. It is not a religion. What do I mean by that? 
religion, as is mentioned by Montgomery Watt and others, and they discussed this first, they said it would be unfair to basically describe Islam as a religion, because it's not that, it's more than that. Islam is a way of life, a deen. And they use this actual word. We should use the word deen. These are Orientalists who had written on Islam. And this is one of the points I found to be very profound, where they spoke of the nature of Islamic faith. Not a religion, but a deen, a way of life. That way of life includes your mental health, your physical well-being, and everything else. That balance, you must live it. Now, in light of a balance that you live, I want to share with you a very interesting hadith uh, between two companions. Salman al-Farisi radiallahu an, Salman the Persian, and Abu Darda radiallahu an. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, uh, when he arrived in al-Madinah and the companions who had come from Mecca, they left everything behind. They came there into al-Madinah with nothing, nothing whatsoever. So the Prophet went about forging a bond of brotherhood between the people of Medina and those who left from Mecca. So they were now brothers. It's called Al-Mu'akhat. Al-Mu'akhat is a special relation uh, of brotherhood. So with this, Rasulullah put together these two, Salman al-Farisi and Abu Darda, they became brothers. So Salman here عن, is saying, I went to visit my brother Abu Darda and I found Ummu Darda, his wife, complaining about Abu Darda. She said, your brother has no need for us in this life. Now keep in mind, Abu Darda was living an imbalanced life. But what was he doing that was causing that imbalance? Was it video games? Of course not. Nothing of this sort. Rather, he was dedicating his entire day and night in worship, actual worship, prayers and fasting 24-7, to the point where he basically was neglecting everything else, just you know, himself and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So in that regard, Salman said, I will give him advice. Abu Darda was fasting. Food is prepared and put before Salman. And here Salman said, by Allah, I will not touch a morsel of food until you yourself join me and break your fast. So he was forced to because it's basically, you know, disrespectful. In this case, that food is given and you don't eat. So he was forced to break his fast. Of course, not a wajib fast. It's a sunnah or extra fast that he was doing. He broke his fast. He spent the night, Salman, in Abu Darda and Salman, in the, you can say, the lounge area. And he, each time that Abu Darda wanted to get up to perform prayers, he held him, sleep, sit down. Until it was the last third of the night, here it was, they got together up and performed the prayers, night prayers. After Fajr prayer, Salman radiallahu an said to Abu Darda, Inna li rabbika alayka haqqa, wa inna li badanika alayka haqqa, wa inna li ahlika alayka haqqa, wa inna li zawrika alayka haqqa, fa'ati kulladhi haqqin haqqahu. He said, Allah has his right that you must fulfill. Okay. Furthermore, your body has a right upon you because it's not yours to do whatever you want with it. You take care of it. It has a right upon you as well. Your family, your wife, your kids, they have a right upon you. Do not neglect that or fail in that regard. He then said to him, your guest who visits you has a right upon you. Don't fall short with him. Give each and every one their due right. He left. 
Here, Abu Darda went to the Prophet ﷺ, told him the entire story. He ruined my fast. He didn't let me perform the prayers. The Prophet ﷺ said, Sadaqa Salman. Salman has told the truth. We live our lives in a balance. Back then, the balance was, as we said, regarding those issues. Nowadays, since our lives have become more complicated, that balance goes to every aspect of your life. What do you eat? What's your intake? What do you do as well overall? Wallahi, sometimes, and this is so frustrating, you'll have a couple come in asking for help. I feel that I'm lonely. I don't feel that I'm, I have any affection or love from my husband or wife. My head, I'm thinking that maybe husband's out all the time. But no, they're all in the same house. What's happening? Each one's on the screen. Same table, same house. The kids are on their own screens. Husband and wife on their own screens. And here they suddenly feel, feel lonely although they're together. It's so sad, Wallahi. It is so sad to see that. This is an imbalance that leads to that mental health crisis, subhanAllah. Islam's approach is to have that pristine balance in every aspect of your life. With it, you overcome issues like this, subhanAllah. I want to move on to the issue of happiness versus pleasure. This is, subhanAllah, to an extent I find very troubling. Often, brothers and sisters, people confuse these two issues. Now, I know the word happiness can be defined the way that you want. Linguistically speaking, you can... I'm using the word happiness as, you know, uh, an equal to a saada. okay? The word a saada means an everlasting happiness that you feel, fulfillment, contentment, okay? So in regards to the Islamic approach, because people say, I want to be happy, I want to feel good, you might have a therapist giving certain interventions that make them feel good in the here and now, but then after, what, a couple of days, it's finished, they go back to it over and over again, right? Islamically speaking, we build upon tazkiyatun nafs, that backbone, wherein you do get that sense of fulfillment, that happiness that's everlasting, at least in dunya, inshallah, and likewise in the akhirah. So it goes beyond this life and transcends to the akhirah, whereby you would achieve jannat al-firdaus bi ta'ala. That is the true happiness for a Muslim. Not what's only material-based, or tied to a certain time frame. It is much more than that. It goes beyond that. So when it comes to happiness, first of all, to us as Muslims, it is a concept of fulfillment, contentment, that is long-lasting. We'll use that term. Furthermore, it's based upon moral achievements. And lastly, caused by the virtues. So your ibadah, as you perform the prayers, you do the fasting. It's hard, it's difficult, but at the end of it, when you do it purely for Allah's sake, you have a sense of contentment, profound fulfillment. I can't put that in words. I don't know how to describe that. You have to experience it yourself to realize how it feels. That is happiness. Now, on the flip side, many have confused happiness with pleasure. Pleasure is momentary, like we said in the here and now. It's not exclusive to only moral issues and it's caused by sense organs. When you confuse those two issues, I'm happy. Are you really happy? Yeah, I am. What do you do? I do A, B, and C. But this does not bring happiness from an Islamic moral perspective. There's more to that, the concept of happiness, than simply this. So this is important as we believe in the end. Our approach to mental health in Islam, it's a, a life concept, beginning as we said with tazkiyatun nafs, ending with this issue of happiness that starts here, 
and basically would give you bi'idnillahi ta'ala jannatul firdaws al-a'la it's not brought about by what you have i've seen so many with every beautiful thing you can imagine the latest gadgets yet they are depressed and sad this is our approach to solving that crisis i do want to add one thing though when it comes to people who seek uh, mental health professionals okay in the past and i know this was a big issue of contention and no doubt we can't deny it there are atheistic roots to the psychology counseling approach here in the west the secular roots in fact if you, you can look at, at sigmund freud as a key example sigmund freud when he was asked about god in the place of god he scoffed at the notion and said this is only a figment of one's mind to fill that void of wanting to have a paternal figure in one's life so he disbelieved oh, complete disbelief scoffing at the whole concept of there being a god or there uh, a need for a god overall and he was among the fathers of psychology you can say psychoanalysis although most of his theories are kind of debunked but there's certain things that are still carried on you have skinner skinner another psychologist who subhanallah likewise was very negative when it came to religion scoffed at it con constantly subhanallah these were the fathers of psychology and there are of course others not as extreme but still they had that their doubts when it came to religion and the role that religion plays in psychology that was in the beginning and it's as if they wanted to basically split away from the faith-based therapies and interventions to discard of faith altogether to show you that it's worthless and now we have something in its place that can fulfill us and give us that sense of fulfillment which is our own secular approach time comes and they begin to realize that subhanallah you know what we're not doing that well and it's maybe good to involve cultural perspectives in counseling maybe even spiritual aspects in counseling, maybe even religious aspects that's why you now have multiple fields and i'll mention one of them the rcbt religious Cognitive Behavior Therapy. From it, you have the IICBT, the Integrated Islamic Cognitive Behavior Therapy, where they're based up, uh, uh, this is based upon the principles of Imam al-Ghazali and others. So we see that shift back towards, because they see now, that this is actually, it had the answer all along. Let's go back that way, right? Interestingly, when it comes to these issues overall, You'll have people pushing certain therapies. And many Muslims don't know that they have a choice here. I've heard from some who said that, oh, they're going to teach me, basically mislead me, misguide me. Yahwan, if someone seeks out a counselor, you're not forced to go by one specific counselor. In fact, when you look at their credentials and what they're good at, they'll list the therapies that they're proficient in. Look for the one that, you know, you would that, that can offer a proper Islamic approach. You're not required to go to the first one in the dictionary and to say, oh, I'm going, I mean, the directory. No, we're going to pick someone who has that ability to basically intervene and give that help if need be. And I don't want as, anyone as well to think that this is haram to seek this type of help if they need it. Mind you, there are peculiar cases in the Muslim community at large where, subhanAllah, like I said in the beginning, people deny the whole existence of mental health issues. They hide away from it because of the stigma that's attached to it. There was a, a few married couples where, you know, after some time, they realized that one or the other was bipolar. And 
The parents are saying, there's no problem, it's all okay. Akhi, what's wrong back home? We're all like this. No, no, no one's all like this, the hell back home. But that's the reality. People have that stigma. And they look at these things in a very odd way, subhanAllah. If help, if no one needs help, khayran, seek that help. But at the same time, do not ignore the Islamic principles. And if you can get, inshallah, one who is in tune with those Islamic aspects, who can offer a proper Islamic intervention and therapy, and alhamdulillah. So here, going back, circling back to the very last thing, I know it's been a while, jazakumullah khair for paying attention. This is what I'm gonna get at. So, mind you, mental health in Islam, there's no one set definition. I've given you the ingredients, right? And you can basically concoct that definition the way that you want. Here, we can say it's a balanced approach to life that ensures that a person is connected to Allah Azza wa Jal and that they understand the nature of this world. That's quite important as well to know what this world is all about. Mental health in Islam would deem it necessary upon a Muslim to look at the challenges of life in a positive manner and instruct a Muslim to hold firmly to Islamic coping mechanisms and directs them to look at the greater abode which is the home of the believer. This is in a nutshell. Barakallah feekum. I should also mention that, uh, you know, the Sheikh is doing masters in counseling. And uh, as he also revealed during the course of the talk, he's, he is the imam in Fort McMurray. He has been the imam uh, in Vancouver as well. So he has a lot of experience in terms of counseling all sorts of different types of people and different situations. So, um, you know, he's also speaking not only from a base of knowledge, but a base of experience. Uh, at this moment, I'd like to open the floor for questions. So if there are any questions, you can, I think, just simply raise your hand and we can address your question, inshallah. In the meantime, uh, actually, uh, I would like to ask the Sheikh a question. So, uh, Sheikh, what would you say are the most common um, triggers or factors that lead to people having a decline in their mental health? There are many things, of course, but one of the things that come to mind is what we've experienced, like I said, in Fort McMurray, so I'll address it from that perspective, where you have constant trauma, trauma upon trauma upon trauma, and then having a person, subhanAllah, who, and there's, you don't have a chance to breathe, basically, so it's hit after hit after hit, and then you'll have people who come up to basically tell them very odd things, that you know what? If you prayed your salah properly, you wouldn't feel like this. If you did your ibadah properly, it would be better. You wouldn't have felt this. As if to insinuate that, you know what, since you're in this condition, you lack faith. That's why you're here. That's not, that's not true. Subhanallah, if it's a matter of one feeling sad, look at what happened during the Prophet Sallallahu time, which is a very you know amazing example, where one of the sahabiyat, the female sahaba, she had lost her husband. Radiallahu anhum ajma'in. And she was weeping at the grave, distraught. The Prophet ﷺ passed by her and said to her, Usbiri, be patient. She basically lashed out, saying, You don't know what I've been through. Leave me alone. And Rasulullah ﷺ just kept silent and moved on. He didn't, for example, sit there and tell her, Fear Allah Azza wa Jal. I am the Prophet of Allah. If you don't do this, I will do this that and make dua against you. No. Rasulullah just understood that she was in a very traumatic situation and now is not the right time to address her. Let her settle down. Let her calm down. Afterwards, when the chance arises, I will address her. 
So before I finish this story, thing is, subhanAllah, we have trauma upon trauma people experience. In addition to people giving wrong advice, wrong time, and you know, insinuating that they don't have proper iman, this really, it's a huge trigger, subhanAllah, and it causes depression because now when a person's there, I shouldn't have felt that way. They have that guilt that really brings them down further, subhanAllah. So this is a lack of you know, knowledge, the awareness has to be there to educate people overall as to how they should how they should be in that condition. Look at the Prophet sallallahu He left after some time. Ali radiallahu an said to her, didn't yell at her. Do you know who that was? She said no. He said to her that that's Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So she got up and rushed to Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And when she saw Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, she said, "I will be patient now." Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, for the full scope and reward of patience, it is to be patient at the first strike of the calamity. He didn't yell at her, didn't put her down, didn't, you know, put her off. No. Very respectful approach. Nasiha, not just for her, but for the entire ummah at large. We can gain so much knowledge, for insight from that, from that, from that you know, situation that, that occurred in the seerah. Many examples like this as well. But overall to me, one of the key issues, and I've seen this myself as I'm bringing this up, trauma upon trauma, those triggers are there. People don't even have a chance to kind of breathe. And next thing, it's hit after hit after hit. So here, subhanAllah, we have to be wise in our approach. We don't want to compound things further. Allah al-Mustan. Barakallah fikum. And one thing uh, I thought of while you were saying that, would it also be fair to say as uh, one of the methodologies of Rasul in terms of when he gives advice to people like you know how you're saying if somebody is going through some type of musibah and you say to them oh just fear Allah or this but I think one thing that we notice from the sunnah of the messenger of Allah is in addition to the nasihat there was always some type of a pragmatic support yeah. or benefit. For example, yeah. when he's riding with Jabir ibn Abdullah wow. and he finds out about his financial situation and he finds a way to give him some wealth, you know wow. what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and Or when uh, he hears of the situation of Salman al-Farsi wow. being a slave yeah. and then he there's some type of practical help, fundraising effort yeah. to help get him out. So it's not just like, oh, fear Allah, you on your own, you do you, right? It's... I'm, you know what I mean? Like, how can I help you? You need some help? Like, right. like e even the moral support, right? Um, I also, it just comes to mind, um, Umar bin al-Khattab, when he um, saw the interaction, you know, when there was uh, this disagreement between Rasul and his wives, and then he tried to cheer him up by saying, you know, the women of Medina are like, you know what I mean? So it's That's like true. you're getting the person, of the mind off of it or doing something else besides oh, okay. saying, hey, this is what you should be doing, mm -hmm. but also maybe this is how I can help you get there, right? Barakallah Fully agree with that, uh, Dr. Sayyid. Barakallah I think that is important to have in mind as well. SubhanAllah. Jazakallah khair. Jazakallah khair. We have a question right here. Go ahead, brother. What's up? Well, tayyib, and I said I gave the definition. I said wholesome. So it's just like natural foods. No, not specifically, but we got to look at the you know aftermath of certain foods because certain foods, GMO alter. We don't know the the impact of that upon your wealth, your 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 so your health. So when we were in Malaysia, we we're looking at the impact of certain foods. You don't know that the problem is you don't know 
about certain foods and what impact they have right now. You're told it's safe. Basically, you're the guinea pig right now. They're going to test it on you to see what happens. Oh, you know what? Actually, that was really bad for you. Everyone, please avoid that food. The guy so and so and so and so are sick. They have cancer. You know, ma'asalama. We're going to now focus on the new generation. This is not good. This is what happens in our, you know, time in, uh, in this era. So the issue is you approach foods with an air of caution, always. Okay? I'm not saying eat raw food. I'm not saying eat, you know, whole food. No, I'm just saying something that's wholesome. So I'm not going to come over here and tell you you can only eat A, X, Y, and Z, nothing else. You're the one that's, that's the judge of that, right? You're going to determine what exactly you consume, what you're going to eat. And that's different for, that, 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 that looks different for each of us, right? So, yeah, that, that's just a, in general. Barakallahu uh, alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. Do you think that the mismanaging of mental health through a religious scope is a major reason that people leave um, religion? Well, I can't see a major reason, but I can agree with you on one part. There is a mismanagement, yes. And that's based upon one's ill knowledge when it comes to the Islamic principles. You know, one might, and we say little knowledge is dangerous. So, and look, I'm, you, you've, you brought to my mind something else. I'll share that with you before I get to your answer. You know, often, subhanAllah, when it comes to the Quran and the Sunnah, many take for granted the English wordings as though this is the Sunnah, this is the Quran. Reality, it isn't. The Quran is only in Arabic. The Hadith is only in Arabic. Everything else, the byproducts, the English, these are simply human efforts to render those words into our language. They're open to, hum to human error, flaws. In fact, I've been through multiple translations, over 20. Each and every one of them have a significant share of flaws, major ones even times. English is not the actual Quran. That's why you always find translation of the meanings of the Quran, translation of the meanings of the Hadith. That's it. You can't use the English. It just gives you an idea as to what the Arabic says. Because of that, we have literal, literal interpretations. One of the most difficult interpretations of the Arabic language into English is that you cannot use simply a, a dictionary. That's not allowed. It's complex because here we have different degrees of the Arabic language. This is what we call a, a shari or sharia-based translation, which requires uh, the one who translates a text uh, to have the proper, adequate knowledge as to what this Arabic term actually means. Some terms... They might give you multiple meanings. But in this hadith, in this context, it means something very specific. Right? And, and, and this is very common. I mean, you have words that you might think, oh, it means this. But no, it does not mean that. The Arabic language is, like I said, so complex. That's why not anyone can translate. The problem is our libraries are full of commercial translations, not based on that difficult, you know, uh, benchmark of translation. It's commercially based. Google Translate, there you go, put it inside there. You get something you can read, but it does not mean what that actually means. It's something else. So you might find some who have a lack of knowledge using texts like this to distance someone, and this will distance someone from the Quran and Sunnah and the deen altogether. Now I'll give you one common example. We have the term at-taqwa. Ittaqullah. How do we usually translate that? Ittaqullah. Anyone, how do you translate that? Fear Allah. It doesn't actually mean that. 
it means that you should be conscious and aware of Allah Azza wa Jal. To be conscious and aware of Allah in all your dealings, in your day in, day out. That's what it means. So when you have a person who doesn't have the proper knowledge, I agree with you, they can be a very powerful negative force who can repel people from Islam. 100%. Right? And we had a lecture up in Fort McMurray before I left on this tour. We focused on the uh, hadith of Thumama ibn Uthal, how he became Muslim, the king of Yamama. So what had happened was he was captured, brought to Al-Madina, and he had a chance to witness the Muslims living their day in, day out for three days. Because of him having that, uh, that ability, that chance to witness Muslims day in and day out, for three consecutive days he became Muslim. No word was said to him. He wasn't preached to, but he became Muslim on account of what he saw. Now, I gotta ask, nowadays, if people see us in our private lives, would we, would we repel people from Islam or attract them to Islam? <laughs> I think it'll be repelling more than anything else. That's the reality, subhanAllah. So I, the, 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 that little knowledge, it is disastrous, definitely. And on account of it, not just in, on mental health issues, in everything, you're going to have people leaving Islam on account of that. But the second part, the majority, I, Allahu, I don't have statistics, sister. Barakallahu feekum. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Question is, if a person, they're suffering from depression, um, and they've gone through trauma after trauma after trauma, and through this they've lost touch with Allah, and they've become hopeless, they think that Islam is a sham, that this ideology that Muslims preach that everything is khayr from Allah is a sham and this has further distanced them away from Allah instead of being patient like being steadfast in this trial that they're going through and they're in depression they're hopeless yeah. and when you try and talk to them and you're like maybe this is a test from Allah and let's be patient how can I help and they're like don't talk to me about Allah whatsoever yeah. my life is the way it is I'm going to die and maybe that will be the end of all this misery. If it gets to that point, a point of hopelessness, you got to understand it's not simply a matter of talking to the person. Talk therapy may not work over here. And there's much more to it than simply talking to a person like this. You don't know what they've been through. They might have been abandoned by the community or no one knew of them. So they're sitting there with no support whatsoever. That brings a sense of, you know, anguish, anger, sadness, when it becomes compounded, it becomes even worse. So we gotta look at the root causes here. What actually brought a person down that path? Giving da'wah doesn't mean, oh, you know what, let's bring you back into Islam first. No, let's work with this person. Look at the Prophet I find it, the, I'm going back to his example because no doubt he is our guide and role model. A person became Muslim during his time, and listen to this. He said, oh Messenger of Allah, five daily prayers is too much, I can't do it. What do you think the Prophet said? It is what it is, take it or leave it? No. Went back and forth, they haggled. Till it was in the end just two or three prayers in the day. The Sahaba said, Ya Rasulullah, how can you let this guy pray two or three prayers in the day only? It's five. Rasulullah said, now he can do this. But when he sees you and you encourage him, the community supports there, he'll be able to do all five with you. That community support, that component is essential. Many cases where people become hopeless, They've been abandoned, Yahi. They've been abandoned. Quite simply put, abandoned. 
They might have even turned to a Muslim and the Muslim might have put them down. Telling me, you have your own problems, man. Get out of my face. I've seen issues like this. It's so heartbreaking. So you can't really tell a person, you know what? We'll bring you into Islam first. Give the person support. And use this, the prophetic approach to build that person. And you know, he's going to come back himself. Bi'idnillahi ta'ala. So it's like your question is quite vague, but overall, I'm pretty sure there's much more to it than simply this. We can't answer it just like on the spot. But overall, to me, this is an issue of more than simply guiding back to Islam. There's much more to it because Islam is not simply talk. It's a way of life. Barakallah. Can I yeah, ahead, say Shem. something also, Sheikh? You know what's interesting? You say that a person went through so much trauma, 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 and then they become depressed and uh, they want to leave Islam maybe, right? Do you know the converse also happens? I've seen non-Muslims, and I know like a case firsthand of somebody who was abused from a very young age. So we're talking about trauma from a child to an adult, okay? So being abandoned by parents, um, getting involved in drugs, and they were able to over their com overcome their trauma through Islam. You understand what I'm saying? So then you can have a case where you have somebody who goes through so much, you know, different types of trauma, depression, substance abuse, and then their salvation is Islam. Why wasn't it that salvation for that Muslim? You know, and I think one thing that the because uh, it, it is a, you can go really deep into uh, talking about this, and especially depending on the person's situation. But what's uh, usually also the case is that that message needs to be accompanied with an opportunity and support to fulfill that message or that guidance. You know what I mean? So for example, if you were in like an accident, a car accident, and they tell you, listen, I know it hurts to do physiotherapy. It's very difficult to do physiotherapy, but at the end of the day, it's going to be better, better for you. That's how you're going to heal from that accident from that trauma that you endured. So there could be a mental block in your mind. Okay, it hurts. I don't see myself getting better. You understand what I'm saying? But it maybe if you have the support, hey, listen, I'm going to come with you to every single physiotherapy appointment. And it's going to be tough, but we're going to get through it. And it might be difficult at the beginning, but then you're going to heal. You're going to get better. You understand what I'm saying? So you're actually supporting. It's not just giving the message as, uh, you know, the Sheikh was talking about, you know, the messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam didn't just say, hey, do this, don't do this. But then there was a path, there was support on how to fulfill that. And that's, um, you know, that's needed as well because you want to not only tell them where to go, but also remove the barriers. Yeah. Well, that was very, very informational. And I'm just wondering, you know, it would be great if every therapist or, you know, every psychologist was, you know, unbiased and perfect, but that's not always true. So how do you recognize bias? In the mental health industry, and how do you deal with it from mental health professionals? Zakallah khair for that, sister. Overall, you're right. Every one of us is biased. Whether it's explicit or implicit bias, we all carry it. Anyone that claims that I am bias-free, is lying. We all have bias. It's not a matter of not having it or having it. It's a matter of you dealing with it properly, whereby you're not basically transferring it to someone else. And 
The issue is sometimes you come across counselors who basically speak to you, they speak down to you. They really, it's it, it's there. You come across that. So if you come across someone who is doing that to you, you're not required to sit with them. Go find someone else, for example. Alhamdulillah. Um, so that bias is always going to be there. And you'll recognize it yourself. You know, I, There's no set formula, A, B, C, no. You're going to recognize it. Maybe in the undertones of the language used or what's basically imposed or actually suggested, I should say. You know, um, once you find someone who tries to push on you, for example, existential therapy, which is basically a secular kind of a, you know, uh, atheistic therapy. But if someone is saying, I think you need this. No, as a Muslim, you have the meaning of life to begin with. You don't need to create from your meaning of life. My meaning of life is already set in stone. I know what it is. Alhamdulillah. So, sister, going back to your question, everyone's biased. It's just seeing the telltale signs. And there's nothing, unfortunately, that you can say A, B, C. It's just, you can, you got to discover it for yourself. I'm not sure if you have, you have any uh, ideas about that. No, Sheikh, uh, actually, I thought of uh, something uh, when you were speaking. And uh, one of the um, benefits or the therapies that they've discovered, which is common to a lot of different mental health therapies, is talking about your problem. Yeah. So the more you talk, so for example, and it doesn't have to be to somebody, by the way. They say, for example, writing in a journal. So if you, you're yeah. going through problems or, you know, uh, whether it's trauma related, whether it's not trauma related, uh, just talking about it. And one thing that they found is that uh, the better you are able to articulate what you're going through, the better that process is, Right. And, you know, I was, I was thinking to myself, because a lot of the literature that I read was surrounded around, obviously, a secular approach. But then, you know, you put on your Islamic lens all the time. You're looking at the world through your Islamic lens. And people really undermine talking to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yes. No. So from their observation, if they observe that just talking about your problems, writing about it in a journal, even if nobody hears it, is beneficial and powerful and they say that it's better when you articulate it then what if you're talking to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who can actually solve your problem and in addition to that things that you can't even articulate from your mouth Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you know Allah can understand it from your heart it's like Allah you know what's going on in my heart I can't even express in words but Allah you know what's going on in my heart you know what I mean? Uh, and that is very powerful. I, I like, you know, from only, not only personal uh, experience, but if you look at uh, secular studies of how they give that importance and emphasis of just talking about, and of course, like, you know, you should, if you have righteous people around you, it doesn't mean you only exclusively be, talk to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but adina al nasiha, you know, you go to somebody who's uh, good and helpful for you, that, that is that is definitely a part of our religion as well, part of our deen. But, you know, I think people kind of say, oh yeah, I know I should make dua to Allah, but they don't do it with like their hearts. They don't do it with their tears. You know what I mean? They don't do it with like that connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there's nothing, I think, that's something that don't overlook it. It's not the only thing, but don't under, overlook it and don't like uh, underappreciate how powerful that is. Jazakallah khair. Actually, brought to my mind something. I want to read this dua for you. Uh, in terms of talking to Allah Azza wa Jal, we might kind of overlook the whole tradition and think it's only, oh Allah, give me this, give me that. No, it's more than that. This is the dua of the Prophet. I'm sure you know this. 
when he left Ta'if, when he was stoned and pushed out of Ta'if, what did he say? Allahumma ilayka ashku da'afa quwwati. Oh Allah, I raise my complaints as to the weakness of myself to you alone. It's not a dua per se. He's talking with Allah Azza wa Jal. وَقِلَّةَ حِيلَةِ وَهَوَانِ عَلَى النَّاسِ يَا أَرْحَمَ الرَّاحِمِينَ أَنْتَ رَبُّ الْمُسْتَضَعَفِينَ وَأَنْتَ رَبِّي إِلَى مَنْ تَكِلُنِي He goes on, يعني, I have little before me. I cannot do much. My means are meager. And people have put me down. Oh Allah, you are the most merciful. You are the Rabb of those who are weak. Oh Allah, you are my God. You are my Rabb. Who would I be left to? Look at this, the words, powerful words. Wasn't this like a form of a therapy for the Prophet ﷺ? Speaking to Allah Azza wa Jal, SubhanAllah. We should do the same thing as well. Practice it in that same format. As Dr. Sayyid mentioned, journaling is important. Likewise, turning to Allah Azza wa Jal to rekindle that connection with Allah. Alhamdulillah. Assalamu alaikum, Shaykh. So we have a question. If someone who needs who reads help with mental health issues and he's surrounded by Muslims who are offering help but feels that they can't trust them due to the misinformed way they handled previous issues, what should that person do? Can you kind of shed light on that? Like they screwed up something or what? It's not my question, but I can, I think what... Um, the person means is uh, they're afraid to seek help from the Muslim community because of the backlash that they or they've seen um, regarding mental health issues such as you know it's always like the same answer turn to Allah when it's you know they feel it's not as simple as that sister if we're talking about an imam there is no doubt something beyond Islam it's ethical issues here confidentiality is a basis for this. You cannot just go about telling people, oh, you know what, so-and-so came to me, X, Y, Z, they have this problem. You can't do that. If an imam is doing that, they sh you shouldn't be going to the person like that then. If they cannot keep things confidential, they're breaking confidentiality. This is what you're talking about right now. The imam or the person or whoever this might be, breaking confidentiality, this is not right. This is absolutely ethically wrong. So there's ethical guidelines that rooted in Islamic principles, but likewise, here in the West, in Canada, you are sworn to that. You cannot simply go about telling people the stories. And I know this is something that we find common, one of the causes for hesitation as well, because they'll say, you know what, I, I know if I tell so-and-so, it'll go in the... And it has. And I was shocked. Before long, you know, everyone's talking, oh, you know what, so-and-so happened, this, that. A'udhu billah, who, who, who did that? Who? And, you know, subhanAllah, it might not be the imam, by the way. It could be the guy that's outside the door listening. You don't know. But then somehow the imam is blamed. And there are scenarios like this where this has happened. So if, let's say, in the scenario where this person, it's been proven that he's broken confidentiality, don't go back to them. Seek someone else, alhamdulillah, who can keep things confidential. There's confidentiality. Thank you for that. But there's also um, when certain, in the Muslim community, sometimes you're not able to find the support that you need because um, there's... A stigma and there's also um, a misinformation as you said before mentioned before where people aren't really educated on how to handle these issues through an Islamic perspective because it's not really talked about so what should a person do if they don't feel like they're able to get that support from the Muslim community sister I don't think that's exclusive to the Muslim community 
Mm-hmm. From their own community, doesn't it? Just if they're not, yeah. they, they're not able to. No, what get I'm that saying, support. what I'm saying is that support in general, right? Support in general, um, is is hard to find, and good support, good support, and support in general is hard to find. And sometimes the advice, like for example, um, you know, an imam might say, "Turn to Allah Subhanahu wa Taala." That's actually still better advice because I've seen people go to like friends and other people. It's like, you know what? Um, take this like uh, drug, you know, it'll take you to another mental state and get you, help you get out of this thing, right? What is the, the class of psychoactive drugs or whatever? So that's, that's even a worse, <laughs> you know, advice uh, that, can, that can come to you, right? So sometimes because we're part of the community, you know, uh, we kind of scrutinize our own community a little bit more. But I can tell you for a fact, like just like there's people who are qualified within the Muslim community, and there's you know people you know within other communities that are, might be more qualified. There's degrees of qualification, right? And it's not easy. I think we have a lot of challenges within our communities. But if you seek, and again, if you gotta, at the end of the day. It is actually important to put your trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because you put your trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but you're seeking the means. Because part of like belief and you know, having tawakkul and believing in the qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that uh, what is destined for you to happen is to also seek the means, not just the result. So you're looking for the result of you know good counseling, you know, overcoming any type of mental you know health issues. But then the means can be a struggle too. The means, and we need help for Allah Subhanahu wa Taala for the goal and the means. You know what I mean? Is there a perfect thing that I can say? Hey, there's this uh, counseling group. You go to them, you're done, you're good. You know, what I mean? unfortunately, that doesn't exist. Inshallah, maybe one day it will. You know, uh, and maybe Sheikh he can help us start something like that. But. Uh, it can be a process to try to seek those means. But I would say also at the same time, uh, shaitan works, you know how they say like, you know, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Well, shaitan also works in different types of ways. Uh, and shaitan sometimes gives you like distorted perspective, like, oh, everything is like that. All imams are like that. You know, all people are like that. You know what I mean? And then you paint everyone with a brush and then you kind of restrict yourself from even getting started. No, not everyone is the same. You know, I've experienced that myself. Like there are good people everywhere and there are, you know, talented people, helpful people within our own community. And there are people who sincerely want to help. You know, so like, again, don't let that... Um, kind of jade you, right? Or, or kind of blind you to the sources that could be out there, inshallah. MashaAllah, you did a wonderful job to explain about this mental health thing from the Islamic side. But if you have somebody who's a mental health worker, but a Muslim, but doesn't know all the law of Islam and give some wrong advice, would that person be accountable for that? You mean a Muslim giving wrong advice? Yeah. Well, look, when it comes to religious advice, let's say it's in the area of mental health and they're unaware they should not be giving specific mental health advice. Even if the person's, let's say, working in that field as, as a social worker, they have a specific job. But when they come in, the thing is in counseling, you don't give advice in counseling. I cannot say this, do A, B, and you don't do that. It's not, you're not in the business of giving advice. We're trying to help you to become better. 
So it does not include advice. But when I give advice, and you, let's say you request it, I can only give it if I'm sure of what I'm going to give you. I can't just simply think, I, this is good, do this. It must be based upon Quran and Sunnah, sound advice, right? But like I said, this is not part of like here, looking at the way that we're doing counseling here in the West. Advice giving is not part of that. You're not going to find it as a part of that. In fact, they warn you, do not give advice to the one that you're speaking to because there's a power differential over here. And they might think, oh, I've got to take this. The guy's telling me this. He's, he's perfect. No, we don't do that. If let's say afterwards, out of the scope of counseling and out of the scope of that person's work, they want to give advice, advice based on Quran and Sunnah only if they know what they're doing. If not, When you ask someone who has knowledge, inshallah. Barakallah feekum. I have a question. Earlier you said that um, a lot of people feel abandoned uh, in the communities and that's one of the reasons why uh, they leave the faith or the imam becomes weak uh, or more trauma and trauma adds on. Uh, mashallah, Allah Ibedi Kanzeed, today or this week, seven new reverts accepted Islam. A lot of people don't understand the challenges that reverts face, uh, especially uh, in the Western world. Uh, where they go to work, there's non-Muslims, the streets, the schools, everything. Uh, what is the next steps for us to support these seven plus, mashallah, new Muslims uh, in our community? Uh, what are the biggest challenges that you see are, they're facing and what can we do now? Because mashallah, there's so much effort for da'wah and may Allah reward everyone who participates in da'wah. But after the da'wah is done, after the table is gone, after the tent is away, after the introductory pamphlets are gone, after shahada is done, uh, I feel and I see and I notice and there's a lot of like good luck like no, su no support so what kind of support can we provide as a community so a lot can be said over here let's maybe add one point Dr. Say you can add a few other points inshallah but you're right you should not abandon people like that they should you know the problem is and this has happened in different communities where they're welcomed initially we've had a few that became Muslim in our city in Fort McMurray. Initially, everyone got up and hugged them and embraced them. They felt so welcome afterwards. Nothing. We haven't seen them afterwards. So you want to basically, as you say, bring them, take care of them, look after them, and give them that sense that this is your place. right? So I think that's giving them a home because they, some of them, when they become Muslim, they lose everything. You become their new family. So you got to provide that safety, that, that sense of stability. It's upon you, the community at large, to do that. Each in our own way, inshallah. I'll add that, maybe Dr. Sayyid, you can add a few things, inshallah. By the way, I just got a message, eighth shahada. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. So, uh, you know what? I think that problem of lack of support for new Muslims isn't just exclusive, unfortunately, for new Muslims. You talk to a lot of youth, a lot of people brought up, um, they wish they could get some more support as well, you know. And, um, you know, I've seen some some people who even wanted to get involved in Masajid. And unfortunately, a lot of obstacles came in their way and they felt they couldn't really be involved, right, in, in, in things. So that's one aspect. Yeah, we need to do better as a community and we're evolving, right, because we're a community made up of immigrants. And so... There's an evolution that takes place, right, from the first generation to the second generation. And you want to acknowledge the good because at the end of the day, Masajid have gone up, 
Islamic schools are here, things like that. But then we have to take responsibility. And I think that's a key thing is more people need to take responsibility because see, just pointing out fault doesn't solve the problem. It's this fault, it's the Imam's fault, it's the Masjid's fault. We need people to take responsibility. That's I think a key thing, you know what I mean? That is actually more important than just trying to find fault. Who's at fault? And um, part of what we've tried to do like with a lot of the DAO and the organization that we've done is actually have more consistent programming. So online classes, um, you know, uh, having that, you know, kind of that ecosystem for support, uh, you know, social support, all of those things together. You know, obviously it's challenging to be able to be so comprehensive, but inshallah, like, I think they're going to talk more about the programs that we have on Sunday at the conference. So um, I don't want to, you know, preempt that because that'll be a whole presentation. But um, I think that's the key thing is that we need more people willing to take responsibility and not just criticize and point fault. And the example that I like to give is in Surah Taha. This is a very, I found this very interesting, Sheikh. I was going to actually talk about this on the weekend, but I'm just going to mention it now. Um, you know, when uh, Musa salam, went to go talk to Allah SWT, and then Allah SWT told him about what Asamari did. So Asamari, he convinced Bani Israel to worship the golden calf. Okay? So we know who's at fault now for this. The first person that Musa salam, rebukes is the people themselves, right? Because they're responsible for each of their actions. Who's the next person that Musa salam, rebukes? Harun. Huh? Harun. Harun. Not Asamri. It's Asamri's fault. But you're responsible for your actions. But he left Harun salam, in charge. He was responsible over his people. So the second one he goes and rebukes, how do you, why did you allow these people to do this? So we oftentimes forget the importance of like taking, that's why we live, we keep going in circles with our problems because everyone says this is a problem, oh, what should we do about it? Oh, no one wants to do anything about it. Oh, well, this is the problem. You know what I mean? To break that vicious cycle, we need, just need more people to take responsibility. You know, more people to care and take responsibility. So there's a lot of effort, so please make dua for all these people that have just pure, sincere intentions. There's no material uh, benefit or outcome that they want for this. So they're doing it really And so we ask Allah SWT to accept all the good deeds, uh, forgive the shortcomings, and um, we hope to have that uh, ability to continue in the future. So Jazama khair for everyone. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.